0: We continue in our worship this morning. We're back in the book of Amos, and we're looking at what he has to say about justice and poverty. Last week, we looked at a bit about what he said about righteousness and justice. This morning, what he says about poverty and justice. And we're going to read from uh, Amos chapter 6, verse 4, the next few verses. And Amos writes this, Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory! stretch themselves out on their couches, eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp, and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. Father God, as we look at that passage and as we think this morning about what you want to say to us through it, let us pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand it. Help us to understand it in its context, but also help us to understand it in our context. Help us, Lord, to just hear your voice speak to us through your word. And Father God, I just pray that you would Guide us in our thinking this morning. Thanks for this, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in the book of Amos, where we've been for the past four or five weeks. And Amos, last week when we looked at him, was upset that uh, people seemed to think they had this passionate spirituality, this deep love of God this close relationship, and that they were doing all the right things. And yet Amos said, your hearts are in the wrong place. And today we just want to tease out a little bit more about what that looks like, what Amos was actually saying about these social conditions of the day and and the people's response to them. So if you have that passage in front of you there, he starts out with talking about beds of ivory and couches and the reality is that it was only rich people that could afford these things. If you were a middle class or below a person in Israel, you didn't have a bed. You didn't have a couch. You didn't even have a chair. All you had was a sleeping mat that you would unroll to sleep on and then roll up again at the end of the night and for the daytime because you only had two rooms in your house and you needed that space. If you were a poor person, you just slept under your cloak. It's why you weren't allowed to take that as collateral and alone, because these people needed that it's the only blanket they had. So they didn't have beds or couches. The poor didn't eat meat very often. It talks there about eating lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. And the reality was, for the average person, they eat meat very, very little. In fact, if you were poor, you maybe ate meat three times a year, and then only because there were these feasts where these animals were sacrificed, And being no refrigeration, the meat was shared widely. And so the poor would get some meat at those feasts of Passover and Tabernacle. And it was never, if you had meat of your own, never sheep or or cattle. They were too expensive. They were too large an animal. It would be a goat that you would have. Then he talks about musical instruments, and I was just thinking how much Amos seems to have challenge with harps, and uh, maybe for a reason, but musical instruments were rare. He references David. I mean, David came from a very leading family of Judah. He was the littlest son, but he was the littlest son in a significant family before he became king. And then he talks about drinking wine in bowls, and I know none of us would do that, but It kind of just sounded to me at first like they were just kind of too lazy to actually, you know, take the wine out of the bowl. They just drank it that way. But the word that's used here in the rest of the Old Testament is only ever used for the special bowls that were used in the sacrifice in the temple. And in the book of Numbers, uh, when they're in the wilderness and they're just building the first tabernacle, each tribe donates a bowl. So there's 12 bowls and they donate a bunch of other stuff as well. But when it's describing these bowls, it says it takes two pounds of silver to make the bowl. Now, I don't know how to do the math on that, but I'm guessing that's not just a little uh, dessert bowl. That's a fair-sized bowl. And uh, Amos is saying, man, you guys drink this stuff by the bucketful. It's like, uh, you know, if uh, you ever went to university, perhaps, and you went to a keg party, and someone just laid down underneath the keg and opened the tap. and yeah, Well, I know you wouldn't understand the illusion, but something like that. He finishes with this idea of anointing with the finest oils. And almost everybody would use oil to anoint themselves, that is to put it on their hair and stuff like that, because it was a way of containing lice. But they had to have the finest. And everything about this is this idea that it has to be the finest and it has to be in large quantities. In other words, Amos says, everything with you guys has to be bigger and better. And at the end of all that, then, Amos levels this accusation. Not only are you living lives of luxury, he says, you have no concern for anyone else. You're not grieved over the ruin of Israel. In other words, they're self-centered and self-absorbed. And all they care about are their own luxuries. So how do we turn that to today? How do we take a look at that and read that passage as if it was addressed to us, as if he was talking to us? And I think the reality is our society idolizes the rich. We all have these stories of how you become rich. And, you know, beyond the one about winning the lottery, the three most common reasons that I think you would say of how to be a poor person that becomes a rich person is you need to work hard, you need to be intelligent, and you need to be able to delay gratification. In other words, you have to not spend everything, but you have to be able to invest. And I don't know, as I uh, think of people in our church who become rich, well, maybe that's how they've done it. As I think of rich people, oh, that's sure not how they stay rich. I mean, I don't know about you, but I can think of rich people that uh, don't work very hard, who... Uh, aren't very intelligent, and don't delay gratification. You know, I mean, and maybe all I'm saying in that is when we think about why are poor people poor, we just reverse those. We just simply say, well, people are poor because they're lazy, they're poor because they're not intelligent, and they're poor because they can't delay gratification. Everything has to be instant. And here's where I find that story of the prodigal son, and I know I've used it before, but it's just an interesting story that it's a story of a rich man who became poor, this son who gets his inheritance and then goes away and ends up um, watching pigs and eating their food. And the question comes, well, why did he become poor? And I think if you were to ask the average person in North America, they would say he became poor because he wasted his money in uh, living beyond his means. In fact, it's actually what his older brother will say later to his father, is that the son wasted his money. But what's interesting is when people talk to people in Russia, they said, why did the younger son run into trouble? They said, because there was a famine in the land. And the Russians have dealt with famine throughout their history, and they know what it's like to, to have people die from famine. And then they asked people in Kenya, in Africa, what happened to the young man? And they said, no one gave him anything. And what's fascinating is all three of those are in the text. Let me read it to you. When the younger son had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. He went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. In other words, all three of those answers are actually there. Most of us just read over at least two of them. And in other words, it wasn't just one thing that caused the problem. It was a web of causality. I first came across that phrase uh, from my pastor when I was going to seminary. Don Anderson was my pastor. He'd been an epidemiologist, a medical doctor who studies disease and uh, the spread of it, Uh, the people that are the experts in COVID these days and how it's going to transmit. And uh, he'd worked for the World Health Organization. He was then a a professor at the UBC Medical School, felt called into ministry and, and became our pastor. And he had a fascinating background to do that. But he talked about a web of causality. And a web of causality is like a both-and on steroids. It's, it's like it's not just this, it's these. And I think what we do sometimes is we say something happens because of this. Or sometimes we say there is a chain of causality. In other words, I meet someone who coughs on me. And I get a cold or the flu and there's this chain of events. And what epidemiologists work with is this web of events to say, no, there's just a whole lot of things that are all happening simultaneously and they all impact that in some way. Um, I'm tired and I run and I'm run down. I'm not eating well, I'm cold, I get coughed on, my body's already fighting something, but it's been successful to this point, and then that's just too much, and it overwhelms my immune system, and I get a cold. And that's a a web of causality. It's a number of things all coming together. And I think that's what you need to do when you're trying to figure out what poverty and wealth and health means in the Bible, and I think in our society, is that it's a web of causality. And, you know, when we think of, of poverty, we think, well, that's absence of money. That's being poor. But the reality is there's this web of causality to it. That poverty is when something is lacking from the shalom or the goodness of God in our world. Gordon King and I teach this class at Ambrose on parables and miracles, and one of the things that Gordon did was he developed this kind of circle of health or wellness or shalom, and every time we use it, we change it, and we don't always agree with each other, but I've put a copy of it in the notes and on the screen behind me, and uh, here's what it sort of looks like. Uh, I would start at the two o'clock place. It talks about physical and emotional health. It talks about family connection and community support and basic needs. And it talks about agency, which is the ability to make decisions, justice, the ability to be treated fairly, and then spiritual health. And all of those together are the web of causality that that makes for health in a society, health in a person. And if poverty is the absence of one or more of those. So I was using this in a lecture at at the seminary and i was talking about the healing of the man with leprosy and i was just started going through that to say when we think of a man with leprosy we think he has a medical condition which he does but he also has a challenge in all six other areas of that obviously he has this physical or biomedical issue um he's unclean he's maybe contagious but leprosy wasn't the leprosy we know it's more like a skin condition but He has to isolate. So we understand this now, self-isolate as a leper. And man, he probably had emotional and mental issues, maybe anxiety, maybe depression, those kind of things. But because he had to isolate himself, he was isolated from his family. So he was cut off from the support and the love of his family. Thirdly, he was cut off from the community. He had to stay outside of the village. When someone came near, he had to say, unclean, unclean, don't come near me. And it's hard to live isolated and be the target of uh, hatred and denigration and and still, you know, maintain a semblance of health. Uh, Well-being requires some minimum standards of food and shelter and security that way. He had no way to work. He couldn't be with other people. He couldn't make stuff and give it because it would be unclean and contagious as well. So he was forced to beg, living on the edge of villages. The uh, fifth one was on this dimension of agency or intellectual freedom. Or I think the whole thing of well-being is that we, we need to be able to feel that we're in control of our lives. When we feel out of control, that's not a good feeling. And for a leper, he's out of control of everything. He has to live on the edge of the village so he can beg. He can't live with anybody else except other beggars. Um, And, you know, he's just got nothing that he can make decisions about. Sixth one is uh, just this idea of justice, this idea of protection from uh, criminals, evil people, whatever. Because they had no standing in community, anybody could do anything to them without being caught or anyone really caring about it. And then the last one of Shalom and and the most important one, but it kind of sums up the rest is this idea of spiritual health, that we need a relationship with God. It's where we find meaning, and we find security, and we find love, and we find forgiveness. And we find that we are not alone. And for an illiterate person who can't go to synagogue, who can't go to temple, they never hear about God. They live life isolated from the community and from God. And so when Jesus heals this leper, what he does is he goes into that leper's life and he actually changes almost every facet of that. Physically, emotionally, mentally, he's back living with his family. He's back in community. He's able to earn a living. He's able to make his own decisions. He can choose his occupation somewhat. He can choose where he wants to live. He can make decisions about his day. He's now part of the community, so he's covered by the by the justice that, you know, the community enjoys. And he's, I don't know what happened with his relationship with God. The text doesn't go into that in that story of the leper, but he sure has seen a sign of God's power in his life. And you got to think that that affected him in some way. Jesus told a parable about a widow who, confronted this unjust judge and just kept coming until the judge gave her what the justice she was asking for. Hey, think of that, you know, here's a widow. Maybe she didn't have great physical issues, but she was dealing with aging. She was dealing with the loss of a loved one. And she had to be looked after by her family. But, you know, that was the theory and practice. Families weren't always that great at looking after their widows. She needed community support, but she had no standing in the community. She had no man. You needed a husband. You needed a son. You needed a father. You needed a man to give you standing in the community. And, and a widow doesn't have that. She's unable to own her own property. Her basic needs were a challenge. It's not jobs for widows. She had no rights as both a woman and a widow. She had no rights, no legal standing. Which is why that parable of her and the unjust judge is such a wonderful parable. It's powerful because she's fighting for her rights in a place where she's not got any. And Jesus is probably in a left-handed way saying, this is what God wants. He's for shalom and justice, for, for this cycle and circle and whatever of, of justice to prevail, even in this widow's life. But how do we hear that today i mean that's all great history and i know you're blessed by it but um how do we apply that today and i think in canada in calgary you know in in 2020 let's look at three different groups of people first of all newcomers to canada maybe no physical symptoms but emotionally there's this challenge of coming to a new country of trying to fit in of trying to figure out how everything works Usually they've left family behind, or more often in our world, they have families scattered everywhere. You know, if you've come from Africa, you might have someone in the States, you might have someone in England, you might have someone in back home in Africa somewhere, or, you know, if you're from South America or wherever. Um, but they don't have family here. They don't have that network here that they had back home, wherever back home was. Community support. Well, they're not part of the community yet. They're new and They find that community support often in other people who are new from the same place, who understand the culture, who understand the language, who serve the same kind of food. And basic needs can be a challenge. We get to Canada as immigrants on a point system. You get so many points for speaking English. You get so many points for age. You get so many points for occupation. You get so many points for other things. But occupation is a big one. The interesting thing is you can get points for an occupation you can never work at in Canada because your professional designation does not carry over. You come over as an engineer. You come over as a medical doctor. You come over as an accountant. Anything that has a professional designation to it, you may not be able to work in here. So there's challenges that way. There's agency, this idea of making decisions is always more challenging when you don't know what your options are. You don't know how things are done here. And justice can be this challenge with discrimination based on uh, language, or based on accent, or based on looks, or based on whatever it is. And the spiritual health, well, that can go either way, can't it? Some people it drives closer to God, some people further. Another one that I've become much more sensitized to, maybe because I'm almost becoming one, is seniors in Canada. Uh, physically, starting to lose strength and mobility. Emotionally, feeling a sense of loss from what they can't do that they were able to do in the past. Family is scattered and uh, either lives at a distance or if they live close, are often so busy that they don't get together very often. So a lack of close connection. Community support, very different when you don't have transportation, very different when you don't have energy, can't go out at night. Community support's a challenge, especially in this time of COVID. Security of basic needs, well, that varies so much. Some seniors, very comfortable. Some seniors, very close to the poverty line. Some seniors, barely getting by. And this issue of agency, I think, is just one of the most important pieces of seniors that we don't take into account. This idea that seniors lose the ability to make decisions about things important to them. Someone else cares about their health. Someone else takes away their driver's license. Someone else makes decisions. I have two quotes about seniors, one for seniors, one for non-seniors. But for seniors, you know, it's like, be kind to your children. They choose your nursing home. And that's such a reality of this world. But the other one is don't tick off old people. As we get older, life in prison becomes less of a deterrent. And so justice for seniors is a challenge with all kinds of scams going on and you know, not feeling comfortable with technology or perhaps not quite as sharp as they used to be. And again, spiritual health, a double-edged sword. Some people close to God, just anticipating heaven. Some people driven away from God by all the realities of aging, of illness, and of loss. And then finally, well, what about the poor? That's who Amos was talking about in his day. Well, looking at the poor as a pool, physically and emotionally challenging to get healthy food to eat to get exercise, to get medical care, to get prescriptions. Family can be present but can also be dysfunctional and not always the best. There's lack of community support due to the cost or the availability or just transportation. And basic needs are obviously a challenge because they're poor. So paying rent, buying food. Agency is a problem. Poor people have less options in this world than many of us. Making decisions requires options and requires knowledge, and not all of that is available to poor people the same way it is to us. And it ties into justice where no one is fighting for the poor. When we hear these stories of what's happened to people, either through scams or whether it's through other stuff, it's people that have no recourse beyond themselves that get caught in that. And spiritual health varies so much. In the African-American community in the States, uh, religion and church became super important, and they became deeply spiritual people. But the reality for the poor is that many churches are middle class and above, and they don't fit. They don't wear the same clothes. They don't feel that they have the same language or the same stories to tell. They're not able to do the same activities. And there's a underground discrimination that we don't even notice. So given all that, what is Amos trying to say to us this morning? I got like two points. He's not saying, that's the first one, he's not saying that owning stuff is wrong. What he is saying is that if you're rich and you have this attitude where you ignore what's going on in the world, where you ignore the people around you. Now, if we define rich as people that have these seven pieces in that circle sort of together, it's not just that you're rich because you have lots of money, but maybe because you have healthy uh, lifestyle. Maybe it's because you have healthy relationships. Maybe it's because you have a healthy income. Maybe it's because you have health in the areas of agency and uh, and justice and, and relationship with God. But do we see that as God has blessed us, therefore I want to just isolate with that, which is kind of what the people of Amos's day did? Or do we see that as saying God has blessed me to be a blessing, as God said to Abraham? And I just think we need to start, what would it mean to actually live that out? And that's why I went through those scenarios. What would it mean in your own family? Do you have seniors, parents, children, grandchildren, You know, depending on your age, um, that don't have that shalom in their life? There's something missing. Is there ways that we can come alongside our own families and make a difference? Are there people in the church that you are aware of or maybe not aware of who are struggling in some of these areas? I was thinking of our seniors and the challenges that COVID has been for them. Thinking of our new Canadians and the challenge of just coming to a new country. I'm thinking of those who are not materially rich, but I'm also thinking of those who have experienced death and loss and how that has affected them. I'm thinking with those who are struggling with health conditions and how that affects. And I'm thinking of those who you know, maybe as parents are being challenged with their children and some of the decisions they're making. And I think God wants us to see through his eyes that poverty is not just, we, we have to care about that guy on the street corner that walks between the rows of traffic with his hat out begging for money, but that every family in our, every family in our church of one or more people is hurting in some way is maybe challenged in this idea of shalom, that there's need in all our lives. And the reason God has brought us together as community is to be that supportive family for each other. And I think of that in our city and in our world. How can we be involved to make a difference? And we've talked about a couple that are coming up at Christmas. The first one is our Christmas offering. We do that every year. It's for the food grains bank. Farmers grow some Grain that we help them with some of the costs of. That grain is sold. The money is given to the Canadian Baptist Ministries to use in food security all around the world. And we've got wonderful stories of what the difference that that can make. But the other one you'll be hearing more of too is our special Advent Christmas. Instead of giving a gift to someone, give a gift in their name. And it goes to help orphans and vulnerable children in Rwanda. It's a separate but parallel one to the Food Grains Bank. And you'll be hearing more about that in a week or two as we get closer to Christmas. I think it was the first sermon, but it was one of the first sermons that I preached on Amos. I quoted from the founder of World Vision, Bob Pierce. And he said, Father, let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. And I just think that's probably what Amos is trying to say at this moment to us, that we would see through God's eyes That we would feel as God feels and that we would be the hands and feet of Jesus in a broken world that's looking for shalom. That's looking for God's presence in these different areas. That when Amos says, you know, if everything is going well with you, have you no concern for others? And for all of us, yeah, we're not as rich as we could be in all those areas. But God is calling us as a community to support and encourage our families, our church family, our city and world, that we can make a difference, that we can bring God's peace, that we can bring his shalom, that we can bring his wholeness, and that we can make a difference for him. And so Amos this morning says, are you just lying on your bed Thinking how great it is. Or are you out there making a difference? And Amos calls us this morning to be those who make a difference for him. And so, Father, this morning we just pray that you would help us to understand this. Help us, Lord, to realize how much you've given. But also help us to realize that you've blessed us, that we may be a blessing to others. Father, we pray for our families. We pray for our church. We pray for our city and our world. We pray, God, for your health and healing and wholeness. We pray, God, for your shalom. We pray for your justice. We pray, God, that you would be with us as we seek to live that out. Father, may we be those who don't just see our relationship with you as just the only piece of the pie that matters. But may we see each of these as linked together. And may we see each of these as part of what you want to do in the world. And so we pray that you would be with us this week. That you would give us a fresh touch of your spirit. That we may be your people. That we may see with your eyes and feel with your heart. And that we may be your hands and feet in your world this week. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.